Hello, it's Mrs. Ruggins here from the Abbey College PE department, and you are listening to our very first podcast. Now, this podcast is focusing on um, our BTEC Sport course that Year 12s and Year 13s take, but more specifically, the Unit 1 Anatomy and Physiology, where you take um, an exam. So, Unit one, the exam, is notoriously the more difficult of the exams that you take. Um, So I wanted to just give you another thing to access as part of your revision for that exam so that you can really prepare um, and have another way of digesting that content information for anatomy and physiology. So the idea is that you could just plug your headphones in, switch this on and listen along to myself talking over all the course content for unit one. So I'll be covering all the different learning aims, um, starting with the skeletal system, moving on to the muscular system, then it'll be the respiratory system, the cardiovascular system, and finishing with the energy systems. I will be dividing this podcast into five episodes. So each episode will focus on one system. And you just need to plug in, listen along whenever is convenient for you. It could be that you're walking to school in the morning or walking back home from school in the evening. It could be that you're on the bus and you just want to plug in and listen to a little part of the episode then. Um, It might be the 30 minutes before you go to sleep at night time. They do say, research suggests that you retain more information um, just before you go to sleep. So that might be an idea for you guys guys it is just when whenever is convenient for you you can click on this link listen to this podcast plug your earphones in and just listen along so without further ado I think we should get started on this episode so I'll be looking at the skeletal system in this episode feel free to have your book with you um, but if you don't it's really it's really not um an essential item to have all you need to do is be listening along so without further further ado sorry let's get started Okay, let's get started with the skeletal system then. Before we go into any detail about the skeletal system, about the structure and the different bones and joints, etc., etc., I think it is really important to really understand the function of the skeletal system first, to understand why we have this skeleton in our bodies. What is the point of that skeleton? Okay, so for the exam, you will need to be able to identify and explain the different functions of the skeletal system. You have five that you need to remember, and those are support, protection, attachment for skeletal muscle, blood cell production, and storage of essential minerals, okay? Now, each of those five functions plays a really important role to our bodies, and what I would like to do now is really briefly go over each one and explain the importance of that function. So let's get started with the support, okay? So we know that our bones are the structure of our bodies. Um, they, they, are, they are put together by joints, um, but more importantly, they support us. The, the bones of our bodies, the skeleton as a whole, supports our posture, supports um, us as human beings standing up and if we're looking and trying to link back to um, our BTEC sport course ultimately it supports us in making the movements we need to do in the different sports that we play so that's the first one that's support number two is protection now our bones are there to protect us to protect more importantly our vital organs so if i was going to do a header in football then my cranium which is also known as a skull but we now know it as a cranium protects our brains okay all our bones have an important role in protecting our bodies everything that's made up in our bodies our bones are there to protect them 
okay so obviously you've got your rib cage that protects your lungs and your hearts you've got your cranium like i've already said that protects your brain have a little think for yourselves any other organs in our bodies that are protected by our bones the third one is attachment for skeletal muscle. Now it's all very well having our skeleton, our bones there, but actually if it was just our bones, they would actually just be a pile of bones on the floor. Without the muscles there that connects the joints and the bones together, and um, the bones are pretty useless, which is why we sometimes refer to the skeletal system and the muscular system as one mus uh, one system, sorry, together, called the muscular skeletal system, because without one, the other can't happen. So without the bones, the muscles have nothing to attach to, therefore movement can't take place. But without the muscles, the bones have nothing to connect them to each other to make movement, therefore are pretty useless too. So we need the muscles and the bones because they attach together to enable us to make those movements we need to in sport. So that's number two, it's attachment for skeletal muscle. Number three is a blood cell, sorry that was number three, the attachment for skeletal muscle, my mistake. Number four is um, blood cell production. Now we know in our bones, they produce um, our white and, white and red blood cells. And without those, our body, body won't work. It won't work properly. We need our red blood cells to be able to carry the oxygen around our body and transport it to our working muscles. Otherwise, they don't provide, we don't get the energy we need to make the movement. But we also need the white blood cells around our body because that fights off infection. Both different blood cells are so important in the running of our body and it is in the bones, the skeleton, that these blood cells are produced. And finally, number five is the storage of minerals. And obviously our main mineral that we all know comes from our bones is calcium. Okay, and again, minerals are important for the day-to-day -day functioning of our entire body. Without the storage of minerals, our body just wouldn't be able to function. So we need the skeleton and the bones there to be able to store those important nutrients and minerals that allow our bodies to function. Okay, so for this next part, we are going to be looking at um, the bones of the body, identifying the names of the main bones of the skeleton. The easiest way we do this is by splitting and dividing our skeleton into two areas, and that is the axial skeleton and the appendicular skeleton. So let's start with the axial skeleton first. So the axial skeleton is the main core or axis of your skeleton, and this consists of the skull, the thoracic cage and the vertebral column. Now we know, need to know the technical terms for the bones that are included in the axial, axial skeleton, sorry. So here we go. So in the skull, we have the cranium and then we have the facial bones. Um, the main one you really need to know is the maxilla and the mandible and they are your jaw bones. But the main part of the skull uh, that you need to know is the cranium and this is the bone that protects your vital organ, the brain. You've then got the thoracic cage, which is made up of the sternum and the ribs. The sternum is the breastbone where all the ribs are connected to um, and it is in the middle of the core of your body. And then you've got the vertebral column and that is divided into five sections. So you've got the cervical vertebrae at the top, which has seven vertebrae. You've then got the thoracic vertebrae which is uh, made up of 12 vertebrae. You've then got the lumbar vertebrae, which is made up of five fused together vertebrae. The sacral vertebrae comes next, where there are another five vertebrae. And then at the bottom, where your coccyx is, you've got your cosigeal vertebrae, and that is four vertebrae fused together. So that's your skull and your thoracic cage areas and your vertebral column. So all of those bones that I've mentioned, the cranium, the sternum, the ribs and the vertebral column makes up your axial skeleton, the main core or axis of your skeleton and body. 
The second area of the skeleton is the appendicular skeleton and this is where all your limbs come into play and it consists of the bones that are attached to the axial skeleton. So these bones will be introduced in more detail later um, but it consists of the upper limbs which is the arms so you have the humerus, the radius and the ulna, they're your long bones in your arms and then in your hands and wrists you've got the carpals, the metacarpals and the phalanges, the phalanges being your fingers. The lower limbs, your legs, include the femur, the tibia and the fibula, again all long bones. You've got the patella which is your kneecap and then in your feet and ankles you've got your tarsals, your metatarsals and again your toes are also called the phalanges. The other part of the appendicular skeleton is the shoulder girdle and that consists of four bones that you need, need to know. You've got two clavicles, that's your collarbones, and then your two scapulae, that's your scapulas. And they connect the limbs of the upper body to the main core, the thorax of the body. And then finally, in the appendicular skeleton, we have the pelvic girdle, and that's made up of three bones. Here's your pelvis, you've got the ilium, the pubis, and the ischium. And these fuse together with age and are collectively known as the innominate bone. The main function of the pelvic girdle is to provide a solid base through which to transmit the weight of the upper body. So it's weight bearing. Weight bearing activity is taken through the pelvic girdle um, to support and protect your body. It also provides attachment for the most powerful muscles of the lower back and legs, which, as we know as sportsmen and sportswomen, are prime movements that take place in sport and activity in the legs. Um, and it protects the digestive and reproductive organs too. So that is the area of the skeleton and the main bones that you need to know. You've got the axial skeleton and the appendicular skeleton. Now, now that we know the and well we know the we've identified sorry <laughs> we've identified um the main bones and i've sort of located them as much as i can verbally through this for you we then need to think about the types of bones that we do have in our body and i've mentioned a couple already the main types of bones you have five are long bone short bone flat bone irregular bone and sesamoid bone now Long bones are found in the limbs and they have a shaft known as the diaphysis and then the two ends of the long bones are known as the epiphysis. So long bones examples would be the femur, the humerus, the, the, the bones that are found in your arms and your legs. Short bones are small, light, strong and cubed shaped bones consisted of cancellous bone which is light and porous bone material that has a honeycomb or spongy appearance and it is surrounded by a thin layer of compact bone. The carpals and tarsals of the wrists and ankles are examples of these. Flat bones are thin, flattened and slightly curved with a large surface area. Examples of these include the scapula, the sternum and the cranium. You then have irregular bones, they have complex shape that doesn't really fit any of the categories above um, and the, the bones of the spinal column are good examples of irregular bones. Your final type of bone is your sesamoid bone and these have a specialised function and are usually found within a tendon. Remember tendon connects bone to muscle. You've got ligaments which connect bone to bone, tendons connect bone to muscle. These bones provide a smooth surface for a tendon to slide over. So the largest sesamoid bone in the body is the patella, which is the kneecap, the knee joint. Now we move on to the spine or the vertebral column. This can be quite complex, um, a lot of numbers and figures to remember, and also some complicated terminology that you also need to remember. So the vertebral column, column is commonly known as the spine or the backbone, and it expands, expands from the base of the cranium to the pelvis. So it provides a central axis for the body. It is made up of 33 irregular bones, and these are called the vertebrae. So the vertebral column accounts for around 40% of a person's overall height. The vertebrae are held together by powerful ligaments. Remember, ligaments attach bone to bone. And these allow little movement between adjacent vertebrae, but a considerable degree of flexibility along the spine as a whole. 
So the vertebral column, we've touched on it very briefly in the last section of this episode, but let's go into a little bit more detail. It is divided into five sections or regions. The first section is the cervical vertebrae, and that is where you will find seven vertebrae of the neck. The first two are known as the atlas, and then the next are the axes, and they form a pivot joint. We're going to look at joints in a bit more detail after this section of the episode, Um, but this allows the head and neck to move freely. They are the smallest and most vulnerable vertebrae of the vertebral column. A little fun fact, um, I was once told when you go and get a massage done, it's actually quite dangerous to massage the your the neck, the area of the neck, because they are so small, the bones in your neck are so small and vulnerable, um, it is quite easy to do damage there. Um, so fun fact of the day for you there. The next part of the vertebrae is called the thoracic vertebrae, and these are where you will find 12 vertebrae of the midspine. These articulate with the ribs. They lie in the thorax, a dome-shaped structure that protects the heart and the lungs. So you will find those in the axial area of the skeleton. The next section of the vertebral column is the lumbar vertebrae. And this is the five largest of the movable vertebrae and it's situated in the lower back. They support more weight than other vertebrae and provide attachment for many of the muscles of the back. The discs between these vertebrae produce a concave curve in the back. Concave is meaning having an outline or surface that curves inwards. Now, the lumbar vertebrae, it says they support more weight so this is where your weight bearing activity and sports come into play the muscles around that region need to be strong to be able to support your body you'll often find that overweight people um, will have a really bad core so their stomach muscles their abdominals um, and they will suffer from lower back pain and that is because the lumbar vertebrae Um, just cannot take the amount of weight that is being applied to them on a daily basis. The next part of the vertebrae is the sacral vertebrae. The five sacral vertebrae are fused together to form the sacrum, which is part of your... Well, it's, yeah, it's in your, sorry, I had to refer myself back to the book then. It's in your pelvic region. So the sacral vertebrae are fused together to form the sacrum, a triangular bone located between the lumbar vertebrae. It forms the back wall of the pelvic girdle and it sits between the two hip bones. The upper part connects with the last lumbar vertebrae and the bottom part then connects to the coccyx. And that brings us to the final part of the vertebral column, which is the cosigial vertebrae. And at the bottom of the vertebral column, there are four cosigial vertebrae and they are fused together to form the coccyx or as you're probably more more aware of it as the tailbone. The vertebral column has many functions. It protects the spinal cord, um, which is full of nerves, which obviously help us to make the movements in sport that we need to do. And it also supports the rib cage. And obviously the rib cage is there to protect our vital organs, the lungs and the heart. The larger vertebrae of the lumbar region support a large amount of body weight and the, thora- the flatter thoracic vertebrae offer attachment for the large muscles of the back. These, along with the invertebral discs, um, and they are fibrocartilaginous cushions that act as the spine's shock absorbing system and prevent injury to the vertebrae and the brain. Um, they receive and distribute impact associated with sporting performance and that reduces the shock. So it protects us from injury. It protects our body when we're doing the exercise and the movements we need in sport. Now the other um, the other bits of information you need to know with regards to the spine or the vertebral column is postural deviations. And there's two that you need to be aware of. There is um, kyphosis and scoliosis. Now kyphosis is the excessive outward curve of the thoracic region of the spine um, and that results in a bit of a hunchback appearance. And this is often caused by poor posture, but can be caused by deformities of the, uh, the vertebrae. The other postural deviation you need to be aware of, and it's very common, is called scoliosis. And actually I've been just recently diagnosed of this after giving birth to my second baby. Um, I had a really bad back, so I went to see a chiropractor. They're the guys that click your back and put you into all sorts of weird positions to help um, 
manage and alleviate any pressures or pain in your back um, and they took some x-rays and it was actually diagnosed that I've got scoliosis so this is an abnormal curvature of the spine either to the left or the right and it is most likely to occur in the thoracic region it's often found in children but can be found in adults so I was told that I've probably had it since I was a child but I've never been aware of it um, the condition is not thought to be linked to bad posture and the exact reasons for it are unknown although it does seem to be inheritable so there we go we have the two postural deviations kyphosis and scoliosis Okay, so in this section of the episode, I want to talk about the major bones of the skeletal system. We've touched on them briefly when I was explaining about the axial and appendicular areas of the skeleton, um, but it's really important that you know the bones of the skeleton off by heart, so I think it's really worthwhile us going over them in a little bit more detail. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to start from the upper body, from right to the top, and then I'll make my way all the way down to the toes. So we're going from top to bottom here. Okay, so if you can visualize the skeleton and the body and try and locate and identify where these bones would be found. So we're gonna start with the cranium. And this box-like cavity consists of interlinking segments of bone that are fused together. The cranium contains and protects the brain. So the cranium is the skull. That's where we find the brain protected. Moving down, we then have the clavicles, which are commonly known as the collarbones, and they are long, slim bones that form the anterior part of the shoulder girdle, and this provides strong attachment for the arms. We then move down to the ribs. There are 12 pairs of ribs, and they form part of the thoracic cage. The first seven pairs are attached to the sternum, which we'll be talking about next, and they are known as true ribs. The remaining five pairs are known as false ribs, as they do not attach to the sternum. The ribs are long, flat bones. Moving on to the sternum, also known as the breastbone, this is the elongated flat bone that runs down the centre of the chest and forms the front of the thoracic cage. Seven pairs of ribs are attached to the sternum, which provides protection and muscular attachment. So remember, without muscles, the skeletal system doesn't really work. We can't have one system without the other. The skeletal system and the muscular system work hand in hand together. Next, you'll find the scapula, and these are known as the shoulder blades, and these large triangular flat bones form the posterior part, so that's behind, of the shoulder girdle. Shoulder girdle, sorry. Then we'll move on to the arms. At the top of the arms, you'll find the humerus. This is the long bone of the upper arm and is the largest bone of the upper, upper, upper limbs. The head of the humerus articulates, articulate is another word for joins, with the scapula to form the shoulder joint. Joints is something we'll be moving on to later on in this episode. The distal end articulates with the radius and ulna to form the elbow joint. So let's move on to the radius and ulna. So the ulna is the longest of the two bone, bones of the forearms. It's the bottom of the arm. The ulna and radius articulate distally with the wrist. So the ulna is the longer of the two bones. The radius is the shorter of the two bones. And this is quite evident when you look at a picture of a skeleton. Next you find the carpals. These are the eight small bones that make up the wrist. They are irregular small bones arranged in two rows of four. They fit closely together and are kept in place by ligaments. Then moving on to the metacarpals, five long bones in the palm of the hand, one corresponding to each digit finger of them. These run from the carpal bones to the wrist to the base of each digit in the hand. And then finally, right at the end of your upper limbs are the phalanges, the bones that make up the thumbs, fingers and toes. Most fingers and toes have three phalanges, but the thumbs and big toes have two. If we move slightly back up to the um, mid part of the body, you'll then have the pelvis. The pelvis is made up of two hip bones, which in turn consist of three sections, the ilium, the ischium and the pubis, which fuse together during puberty to form one bone. The ilium structure provides a socket for the ball and socket joint of the femur. Again, we'll be looking at joints in a bit more detail after this, episode, um, after this part of the episode, um, allowing the legs to be attached to the main skeleton. Next, we have the femur, the longest and strongest bone in the body, sometimes referred to as the thigh bone. The head of the femur fits into the socket of the pelvis to form the hip joint. The lower end joins the tibia to form the knee joint. 
Over the knee joint, we then have the patella, which is the kneecap, the large triangular sesamoid bone found in the quadriceps femoris tendon. It protects the knee joint. The knee joint is quite a complicated joint, which we'll look at a bit more detail later on. Tibia and fibula come next. They are the lower part of the leg, the long bones that form the lower leg. The tibia is the inner and thicker bone, also known as the shin bone. So the tibia is the shin. The upper end of the tibia joins to the femur to form the knee joint, while the lower end forms part of the ankle joint. The fibula is the outer thinner bone of the lower leg. It does not reach the knee, but its lower end does form part of the ankle joint. You've then got the, the tarsals along with the tibia and fibula. Seven bones known collectively as the tarsals form the ankle joint, including the heel. The calcineus or heel bone is the largest tarsal bone. It helps to support the weight of the body and provides attachment for the calf muscles via the Achilles tendon. The tarsals are short and irregular bones. You've then got the metatarsals and there are five metatarsals in each foot. These are located between the tarsals and the phalanges, the toes. Each metatarsal has a similar structure with a distal and proximal head joined by a thin shaft. The metatarsals are responsible for bearing a great deal of weight and they balance pressure through the balls of the feet. The metatarsals are actually a common site of fracture in sport. So there you have the major bones of the skeletal system looked at in a little bit more detail. you also need to be aware of the process of bone growth. So bone is a living organ that is continuously being reshaped through a process called remodeling. Ossification is the process in which bones are formed. Throughout this process, parts of the bone are reabsorbed so that unnecessary calcium is removed via cells called osteoclasts while new layers of bone tissue are created. The cells that bring the calcium to your bones are known as osteoblasts and are responsible for creating bone matter. Osteoblast activity increases when you exercise, so your bones will become stronger the more exercise that you do. This means that your bone calcium stores increase to cope with the demand for calcium, so exercising also reduces, reduces the risk of osteoporosis. Activities that can build stronger bones include tennis, netball, basketball, aerobics, walking and running, to name just a few. The ends of each bone, each long bone, contain growing areas or plates which allow the bones to grow longer. This continues through childhood until they reach full maturity. These areas are called the epiphyseal plates and allow the long bones to extend. Once the long bone is fully formed, the head or end of each bone fuses with the main shaft, the diaphysis, to create the epiphyseal line. of this episode we'll be looking um, at the functions of the skeletal system in just a little bit more detail we obviously identified the main functions of the skeletal system right at the beginning of this episode um, and they were support protection attachment for skeletal muscles source of blood cell production and store of minerals um, but there's a few others that you need to be aware of and we also need to look at the main function of different bone types as well so we're starting to really link information together here so let's quickly go over the five functions that we already know but there's no harm in repeating um, what we've already learned. So you've got support, so collectively your bones give your body shape and provide the supporting framework for the soft tissues of your body. You've got protection, the bones of your skeleton surround and protect vital tissues and organs in your body. Your skull protects your brain, your heart and lungs and they are protected by your thorax. Your vertebral column protects your delicate spinal cord and your pelvis protects your abdominal and reproductive organs. You've also got attachment for skeletal muscle. Part of your skeleton provides a surface for your skeletal muscles to attach to, allowing you to move. Tendons attach muscles to bone, providing leverage. Muscles pulling on bones act as levers and movement occurs at the joints so that you can walk, run, jump, kick, throw, etc, etc. Whatever you need to do in your sporting performance. Type of joint determines the type of movement possible. Again, we'll be looking at the types of joints and movements later on in this episode. 
you've then, then got source of blood cell production. Your bones are not completely solid, as this would make your skeleton heavy and difficult to move. Blood vessels feed the centre of your bones and stored within the bones is bone marrow. The marrow of your long bones is continually producing red and white blood cells. This is an essential function as large numbers of blood cells, particularly red cells, can die every minute. The last one that we have already covered is storage of minerals. Bone is a reservoir for minerals such as calcium and phosphorus, which are essential for bone growth and the maintenance of bone health. These minerals are stored and released into the bloodstream as required, balancing the minerals in your body. Now, there's three more functions that we haven't yet looked at, um, one of which is leverage, so or leverage, some people pronounce it. The bones provide a lever system against which muscles can pull to create movements. So it's all about that muscle pulling on your bones across the joints to allow the movements to take place in the sporting activities that you perform in. The next one is weight bearing which we have briefly mentioned um, sort of throughout this episode and that is where your bones are very strong and will support the weight of your tissue including the muscles. During sport large forces are applied to your body and your skeleton provides the structural strength it needs to prevent injury from occurring. And the final function you also need to be aware of is reducing friction across joints. The skeleton has many joints of different types. Synovial joints secrete fluid that releases fluid that prevents bones from rubbing together and this reduces friction between the bones and this obviously reduces the discomfort that you can sometimes feel once your bones um, are maybe suffering from a bit of wear and tear as you get older. Now with those functions it can be sort of dwindled down even further into the different bone types. So the bones in your body have many different functions depending on their shape and location. Consider the bones of the arms and legs and how they are used in sport. In conjunction with your muscles, these long bones can produce large movements such as kicking or throwing as the long bones act like levers. The flat bones of the body are also important in sport as they can provide protection from impact, ensuring that your vital organs remain functioning. So, for example, headering in football, the cranium protects the brain. Um, if you have got your book with you, on page 11, there is a table. I'm going to read through that table with you now, just in case you haven't. Um, so I'm going to go through the different types of bones, what their function is, and a sporting, well, not sporting example, but an um, example of the bones that fall under these categories. So you've got the type of long bone. This main function really is movement support and red blood cell production and that is found in the femur the humerus the tibia the radius and the ulna you've then got the short bones the function of short bones is for spine or small movements to occur they shock absorb they provide stability and they also are weight bearing these are found in the carpals and tarsals Flat bones are attachment for muscles and for protection. And you can find these in the sternum, the scapula, the pelvis and the cranium. And then you've got sesamoid bones. They are there for protection. And this is for reduction of friction across the joint as well. Mainly found in the patella, your kneecap, but also found in the wrist, which is also known as the pisiform. And then the final type of bone, the irregular bone, uh, the main function of that is for protection of the spinal cord and movement. And that is found in the vertebrae. Okay. So now we're moving on to the joints of the skeletal system. You've seen that your skeleton is made up of bones that support and protect your body. But for movement to occur, the bones must be linked. A joint is formed where the two or, two or more bones meet, and this is known as articulation. The adult human body contains around 350 joints, which can be classified in different ways depending on their structure. So we have three main classification of joints, and they are fixed slightly movable and synovial. Synovial joints are the ones we're really interested in and you'll find out why in just a second. But let's start with fixed joints. So fixed joints, or they're also known as fibrous or removable joints, do not move. Fixed joints form when the bones interlock and overlap during early childhood. These joints are held together by bands of tough fibrous tissue and are strong with no movement between the bones. An example of this is between the bone plates in your cranium, which are fixed together to provide protection for your brain. 
The second type of classification of joint is the slightly movable joint, also known as the cartilaginous joints, and they allow just slight movement. The ends of the bone are covered in a smooth, shiny covering known as articular or hyaline cartilage, and this reduces friction between, between the bones. The bones are separated by pads of white fibrocartilage. It's a tough cartilage that is capable of absorbing considerable loads. Slight movement at these joining surfaces surfaces is made possible because the pads of cartilage compress. So examples of this would be between the vertebrae. Now, the type of classification of joint we are most interested in is the synovial joint because they are freely movable joints and they offer the highest level of mobility at a joint and are vital to all sporting activities. Most of the joints in your limbs are synovial. A synovial joint consists of two or more bones and the ends of which are covered with articular cartilage and this allows the bones to move over each other with minimum friction. Synovial joints always have a synovial cavity or space between the bones and this cavity is completely surrounded by a fibrous capsule lined with a synovial membrane whose purpose is to release or secrete fluid known as a synovial fluid into the joint cavity. This lubricates and nourishes the joint. The joint capsule is held together by tough bands of connective tissue known as ligaments and these ligaments provide the strength to avoid dislocation while being flexible enough to allow a wide range of movement. So all synovial joints contain the following features and if you can try and picture that little diagram of a synovial joints which is labelled with all of these different features. So the first thing is a joint capsule or a fibrous capsule, an outer sleeve to help to hold the bones in place and to protect the joints. The second is a bursa, a small fluid-filled sac which provides a cushion between the tendons and the bones, preventing friction. Bursa are filled with synovial fluid. The next is articular cartilage. On the ends of the bones, you'll find these, which provides a smooth and slippery covering to stop the bones rubbing or grinding together. A synovial membrane is the next thing you will find in a synovial joint, and this is the capsule lining that releases the synovial fluid. You've then got the synovial fluid itself, which is a viscous, which means thick, liquid that lubricates the joints and reduces the friction between the bones, preventing them from rubbing together. Synovial fluid also provides nutrients to the articular cartilage. And the final structure that you need to be aware of is ligaments. And we now know that ligaments hold the bones together. Ligaments join bone to bone, and it helps to keep the joints and the bones in place. So let's take a look at the different types of synovial joint in a bit more detail. There are six types of synovial joint that you need to know and these are categorised according to their structure and the movements that they allow. These joints will permit specific movements and combined will allow you to perform complex techniques such as a somersault or a tennis serve. So, the first type of synovial joint we're going to talk about today is the hinge joint. Hinge joint allows movement in one direction only, similar to the hinge of a door. Elbow and knee joints are the prime examples of a hinge joint and only allow movements forwards and backwards. Exercise examples include running with the knee bending or a bicep curl as you're lifting and lowering. So that's the hinge joint. The second type of synovial joint you need to be aware of is the ball and socket joint. And this is the round end of one bone fits into a cup-shaped socket in the other bone, allowing movement in all directions. Examples include the hip and the shoulder joints, and these can be used in running and in throwing an object such as a javelin. Obviously, there are so many more sporting examples, so what I would like you to be doing as you're listening to me explaining the different types of synovial joint is relating these different synovial joints to your sport and thinking of um, examples of techniques and skills where this type of jo joint would be predominantly used. The third synovial joint is the condyloid, also known as ellipsoidal joints. Excuse my pronunciation. These are similar to ball and socket joints in which a bump on one bone sits in the hollow formed by another. Movement is backwards and forwards and from side to side. Ligaments often prevent rotation. An example of a condyloid joint in action is during a basketball game when a player is dribbling or bouncing the ball with the wrist being used to create this action. The fourth synovial joint is the gliding joint, and these joints allow movement over a flat surface in all directions, but this movement is generally restricted by ligaments again, for example in the carpals and tarsals of the wrists and ankles. This can be seen in a netball jump with the foot pointing downwards. 
Your next synovial joint is the pivot joint, and this is a circular bone which fits over a peg of another bone, allowing controlled rotational movement, such as the joint of the atlas and axes in your neck. This joint allows you to turn your head from side to side. So when you turn your head in sport, you'll be using the pivot joint. A really obvious one would be headering a football um, during a football game. And the final synovial joint you need to be aware of is the saddle joint. These are similar to condyloid joints, but the surfaces are concave and convex. The joint is shaped like a saddle with the other bone resting on it like a rider on a horse. Movement occurs backwards and forwards and from side to side, such as at the base of the thumb. You would use a saddle joint when gripping a racket in tennis or squash. What you need to be able to do really is um, to know the different types of joint off by heart and identify the location of each of these different types of joints. You should be able to describe the location of each of the synovial joints in the body and you should really be able to draw a synovial joint and label its main structural features. I'm going to hold it there and the next segment of this episode will be looking at the different range of movements that are available at the different synovial joints. The range of movements at synovial joints. So the type of movement that each synovial joint allows is determined by its structure and its shape. Sporting techniques usually use a combination of different joints to allow a wide range of movement or techniques. For example, a cricketer bowling a ball will use joints in the fingers, the phalanges, the wrist, the elbow and shoulder. They will also use the joints of the foot, ankle, knee and hip when running. It is important when studying sports performance in action that you are able to break down these techniques and identify the specific movements at each joint. A coach will often analyse the movements produced by an athlete in order to improve technique and it is common to see movements filmed and analysed in detail using computer software. The range of motion is the amount of movement at a joint and is often referred to as joint flexibility. Flexibility will also depend on a number of factors including age, the tension of the supporting connective tissues, tendons and muscles that surround the joint and the amount of soft tissue surrounding the joint as well. The following movements are common across a wide range of sports and are important when performing sport and exercise techniques. So, the first range of movement that we're going to talk about is flexion. Flexion is when reducing the angle between the bones of a limb at a joint. Muscles contract, moving the joint into a bent position. So examples would be bending your arm in a bicep curl action or bending the knee when preparing to kick a football. The opposite to this is extension, straightening a limb to increase the angle at the joint, such as straightening your arm to return to your starting position in a bicep curl or the kicking action when taking a penalty in football with the knee straightening. The next two are dorsiflexion and plantar flexion, again, complete opposites. So dorsiflexion is an upward movement, as in moving the foot to pull the toes towards the knee in walking, whereas plantar flexion, like planting your foot down, is the movement that points the toes downwards by straightening the ankle, and this occurs when jumping to shoot in netball. You've then got lateral flexion, the movement of bending sideways, for example, at the waist, when you're doing those stretches. Horizontal flexion and horizontal extension are the next type of range of movements. And this is when bending the elbow while the arm is in front of your body and straightening the arm at the elbow is the extension type. Hyperextension involves movement beyond the normal anatomical position in a direction opposite to flexion. This occurs at the spine when a cricketer arches his or her back when approaching the crease to bowl. You've then got abduction and adduction, again opposites. Abduction is movement away from the body's vertical midline, such as at the hip in a sidestep in gymnastics. So abduction, think of being abducted by aliens, it's taking it away from the body. And then adduction is movement towards the body's vertical midline, such as pulling on the oars whilst rowing. You've then got horizontal abduction and adduction. So this is the movement of bringing your arms across your body and then back again. And then the final two you need to know are circumduction and rotation. These can get confused sometimes. Circumduction is a circular movement that results in a conical action. 
Rotation is a circular movement of a limb. Rotation occurs at the shoulder joint during a tennis serve. If you look at pages 15 in your, just page 15 actually in your BTEC book, you will see some really good diagrams which um, show all of these movements taking place. Okay, and welcome to the final segment of this episode, the skeletal system. So here we're going to look at the responses of the skeletal system to a single sport or exercise session, the adaptations of the skeletal system to exercise, and the, any additional factors affecting the skeletal system. So this segment, and as I teach in lessons, is all of the other bitty body, bobby bits that you need to know about the skeletal system that maybe don't fit into the previous categories that we've gone through. So let's start with the responses of the skeletal system. So you are probably aware that during exercise, your heart rate and breathing rate increase but did you know that your skeletal system will also respond to exercise this is sometimes overlooked as the changes are small and out of sight when you exercise or take part in your sport your body systems will adapt almost instantaneously so that your body is prepared for the additional stresses that will be put on it this is one of the reasons why you should always complete a well-planned and performed warm-up before starting any physical activity your skeletal system will respond to exercise in the short term by, by producing more synovial fluid in the synovial joints. This is so that the joints are lubricated and can protect the bones during the increased demands that exercise puts on the skeleton and joints. The fluid will also become less viscous and the range of movement at the joints will increase. The release of synovial fluid from the synovial membrane will also provide increased nutrients to the articular cartilage. Another acute response, so this is when the body makes an immediate change or response, to exercise is the increased uptake of minerals within the bones. Just as muscles become stronger the more you use them, a bone becomes stronger and denser when you regularly place exercise demands upon it. The body will absorb minerals such as calcium which will increase your bone mineral density. This is especially important for weight bearing exercises such as bench pressing. When more stress and force is applied to the bones they must be strong enough to cope with these increased demands. So the adaptations of the skeletal system are your body responds to the stress of exercise or physical activity in a variety of ways. Some of these are immediate and are often referred to as acute responses to exercise. Others are long term and are often referred to as chronic responses or adaptations that contribute to the improved fitness for sports participation and reduced health risk. Like other systems of the body, the skeletal system will adapt to exercise. Exercise will increase your bone mineral density and over time this will result in stronger bones, which will be more resistant to the forces found in sports such as kicking, jumping and running. Long-term physical activity will also increase the strength of the ligaments which attach your bones together at synovial joints. When you exercise as part of a training program, your ligaments will stretch a little further than normal and as a result will become more pliable over time resulting in increased flexibility. And now the final few things that we're going to talk about with regards to the skeletal system, and these will come under the additional factors, are arthritis, osteoporosis and age. The benefits of taking part in regular exercise or physical activity are huge. People who take part in regular exercise are more likely to live longer and are less likely to develop serious diseases. Exercise should be part of a healthy lifestyle and it is common to hear about the benefits of physical activity in preventing heart disease and controlling weight. Regular exercise can also help common skeletal diseases such as arthritis and osteoporosis. So arthritis is a condition where there is an inflammation within a synovial joint, causing pain and stiffness in the joint. The most common type of arthritis is osteoarthritis, and this is caused by general wear and tear over a long period of time. This reduces the normal amount of cartilage tissue, which may result in the ends of the bone rubbing together. This natural breakdown of cartilage tissue can be made worse by injury to the joint. However, regular exercise can prevent arthritis. During physical activity, your joints will produce more synovial fluid, which will not only improve the joint lubrication, reducing friction between the bones, but will also provide important minerals to the cartilage. Exercises such as stretching will also improve the joint range of motion, lengthen the ligaments holding the bones in place, and of course, improve flexibility. 
Osteoporosis is the weakening of bones caused by a loss in calcium or a lack of vitamin D. As you get older, your bones slowly lose their mineral density and naturally become brittle and fragile and more likely to break under stress. However, physical activity and exercise can prevent osteoporosis by promoting increased uptake of minerals within the bones, resulting in an increase in bone mineral density. Resistance training is a good method of preventing osteoporosis as overloading the skeleton will increase bone density, which in turn makes them stronger. And the final factor you need to be aware of is age. The skeletal system is a living tissue that is constantly growing and repairing itself so that it can provide support and protection. Generally, exercise and sports will, will benefit you. The exception to this is resistance training, weight training in children, as this can cause more harm than good. So children should not do weight training. This comes up in the exam quite a lot. The reason for this is that a child's bones are still growing, so putting too much force on them can damage the epiphyseal plates, which are found at the end of each of the lung bones. Damage to these plates during heart, childhood and puberty can result in stunted bone growth. And there we have it. This is the end of our first episode about the skeletal system for the unit one part of the BTEC Sport course. Um, so listen back to this as much as you need to. I hope it's um, been useful to you and convenient for your revision in preparation for the exam. Um, try and remember the main assessment outcomes for the whole unit as a whole and apply them to the skeletal system. So for assessment objective number one, you need to be able to demonstrate knowledge of the body systems, structures, functions, characteristics, definitions, and other additional factors affecting each system. Um, your main command words that you'll find in the exam here are identify, describe, give, state, name, um, and the sort of marks for that um, those sort of questions will range from one to five marks. For assessment objective number two, you need to be able to demonstrate understanding of each body system, the short and long-term effects of sport and exercise on each system, and additional factors that can affect body systems in relation to exercise and sporting performance. Command words you'll find here in the exam questions are describe, explain, give, state, and name. Again, the marks range from one to five marks in the exam for these type of questions. AO3, so assessment objective number three, is about analysing exercise and sport movements, how the body responds to short-term and long-term exercise and other additional factors affecting each body system. Command words in the exam questions you'll find here are analyse or assess. These are generally the six mark questions. Assessment objective number four is evaluate how body systems are used and how they interrelate in order to carry out exercise and sporting movements. Here you'll find the command words are evaluate and assess and again are six mark questions and assessment objective number five is making connections between body systems in response to short-term and long-term exercise and sport participation make connections between muscular and all other systems cardiovascular and respiratory systems energy and cardiovascular systems so what it's saying there is the muscular system works with all of the other systems um, you'll usually find a question about the cardiovascular system working with the respiratory system or you might find a question about the energy energy system working with the cardiovascular system um, and the command words you'll find in the exam questions here are analyze evaluate assess discuss and to what extent and here the questions are usually worth about eight marks and um, so thank you for listening to this episode and um, please tune in to our learning aim b which will be the effects of exercise and sport performance on the muscular system um, which you will find after this episode but for the meantime I hope you feel like you've learned a lot about the skeletal system and we will leave it there. Thank you and goodbye.